Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your listener-driven Q&A Week in Sports Cars episode. I am Marshall Pruitt. I cover sports cars in North America. Used to be a guy who worked on sports cars. IMSA GTP era back in the day, touring cars. Ran my own little endurance racing team for a few years and was so successful, I now host a podcast about sports cars. On the other end, that is my friend, far more successful. A voice you have likely heard, a face, if you're fortunate, you have rarely seen. Nonetheless, this is Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, also a man who has brought you many, many years of Le Mans coverage, WEC coverage, Asian Le Mans series, European Le Mans series on television, on radio. I don't know what else to say after that, but those are words that I said. Graham Goodwin. Thank you for those words, Marshall. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Here in the UK, it's another sunny, rather blustery day, but um, yeah, we're just <laughs> month three. Lockdown continues, uh, punching out news and features as best we possibly can and spreading positivity around the sports car world. Uh, great to hear your voice, young man, and um, and we push on with uh, another bumper batch of questions. It, it does seem to me, Marshall, no matter how late we put out a call for questions, they still keep coming. And, and in part, that's because we have had a bit of news um, over the last few days, more of the organisations around our world about back to racing and bits and pieces of news coming out uh, indeed yesterday. Now, we've got a couple of questions about Danny Binks uh, and that news breaking uh, yesterday as we record this, but uh, beginning to start to see news start to emerge, aside from losing Danny Binks to the, uh, the, the immediate sport, of a more positive nature. Share your thoughts on that front for sure, mate. This week does feel vaguely normal. Like the yes. first, the little spark, the embers of normalcy of just speaking from a news and reporting standpoint where it hasn't been so heavily focused on esports retro content, admittedly just some shiny objects to put in front of folks in the absence of proper racing and proper racing news. So certainly ticking along here, I do enjoy this end of week push that we've done with the weekend sports cars. Normally we try and do this on a Tuesday or Wednesday, but I've enjoyed trying to stretch things out a little bit. Plus admittedly with this week being what would have normally contained the Indianapolis 500 have intentionally gone a little bit uh, above normal content flow there pushing out a number of additional podcasts uh in and around indycar but also look forward to us getting into june where granted we also will not have 24 hours of Le Mans in its normal spot but we will indeed be going over and above with content there before we get going mate with all the great questions that have come in all brought to us by cooper tires and the justice brothers Toronto Motorsports.com and the fine folks at Bell Racing Helmets USA feel compelled to share that to my left for this broadcast, I have our cat Rose. Rosie, she is sitting on top of my scanner, which I've been using a lot lately, thankfully getting caught up on a genuinely 
uh, five to 10,000 images that need scanning. Haven't done that many, but at least have jumped in pretty hard to move that along. I have Rosie sitting to the left, gazing outside, probably with her eyes on a bird she would love to get. To my right, I have Rocky asleep and kind of sort of in front of me. I have what might be considered a paper-based unicorn. It's a brand new book published by a good and old friend, J.J. O'Malley, often is sitting to my right in the Daytona Media Center during the 24-hour event as a co-pilot and co-creator of content for Racer.com. This is a man who worked for IMSA for decades and then transitioned into Grand Am, then into IMSA and its new guys, someone who was there for the entirety of of the Daytona prototype era in JJ bless him talking about motor racing books that definitely fall in the category unicorns. I don't know how many people are going to buy this, but for the seven people who loved Daytona prototypes, darn it. You have a brand new book to purchase. What is it called? The Daytona prototype, the concept Graham that revolutionized American sports car racing. And as an American I feel compelled to mention as well that sometimes revolutions aren't successful and fail. Uh, But nonetheless, they were accurately described as revolutions. So in that regard, it did revolutionize American sports car racing. And it's a fine book. JJ is a fine writer. Uh, And I'm not saying this, this isn't a sales pitch. This is just, it just showed up and I opened up the little cardboard container and it had this and so i look forward to reading more uh some fine photos in here from our pal brian cleary a man who has photographed everything in sports car particularly in florida forever uh so yeah um this my friend i didn't know was going to be here much less land during this shutdown but hey the world has a new if not maybe the only book on daytona prototypes and I think I've lost Graham. I think he was bludgeoned by a DP and Skype decided to shut things down. So is this the end of the episode? Or should I just start reading the entire Daytona prototype book to you? I think that's what we're going to do for this episode, or at least until we get Graham back. Grand Am Road Racing was looking for a new concept for the lead chassis of its Rolex sports car series this new car would be safe it would be affordable both for the initial purchase and subsequent upkeep and it would be raceable capable of racing wheel to wheel competition and robust enough to make some on-track punishment to take some on-track punishment and be able to continue the result the daytona prototype uh, so there you go. Printed by Edge Set Marketing. Printed in the United States of America. I would say who could ask for more? Uh, I don't know. I genuinely want to hear from those of you who want to buy it and have bought it because darn it, we love you and you're incredibly special. And you know, we don't have them back. We don't know what happened to Graham Goodwin. Again, I'm going to blame a Picchio chassis for crashing into his Wi-Fi in the UK. Well, let's give him a ring and know 
I'm actually not intending to edit any of this out, provided we can get them back. Let's see. Little Skypey dance music. Do we get Graham Goodwin? Do we not get Graham Goodwin? Show is falling off the rails. Hasn't even really started yet. And Hey, look who it is! And we're uh, still recording, we've... and I'm not going to edit this oh, out. Oh, we're still recording. So... Uh, well, apologies. Um, my uh, home Wi-Fi is just... I... How can we put this? I knew it. Defecated. No, myself. I knew it. I actually just started reading some of the book, uh, waiting to get you back. <laughs> and I posited that uh, a Picchio crashed into your home Wi-Fi. I, uh, yeah. I might be onto something here. So... You're back. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, 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 keep, we'll keep talking. You're going to have to send uh, uh, talk some questions to me because what I'm going to go and do now is walk up the garden and reboot the, um, the, the Wi-Fi uh, from the house, oh, which might mean great. we're going to do husky action. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll do that. Well, we're you, not, you can crack on. We're not cutting any of this out, but I can't read questions to you until the yep. Weekend Sports Cars official selector chooses where we start. Well, since you're going to be reading to me, probably the best bit is that we start with... I can't do that because it clearly isn't the Wi-Fi. It's the Wi-Fi down in the office because my wife's on a Zoom conference with her insane friends and I can't get into the, the living room because there's a large husky there uh, lying across the threshold. So it must be the, the route for back in the office. Anyway, let's do Wet Aslam's Elms and Echo. I, this is just seriously... This is making my day because why sound incredibly professional? No, I just said incredibly professional. So that's a new one there. Jacob Bain, please Another add that to the Twitch Canary. Yeah. Um, why sound super professional when you can just leave the reality of our nonsense and our ass hattery in place? So let's do exactly as you have requested. We're going to start off here with. Questions sent in by you on the social medias, the book faces, the Reddits, by the way, a new addition to the week in sports cars. And, and reintroduced a uh, reintroduced thing. We, we, we did that well, a while back, and I'm afraid that was my doing. It dropped off, I'm afraid. Well, we still love you. So we're going to go with Dennis Perokniak, who says, Graham, why is Ferrari, if rumors are to, be, to be believed, so keen on having an LMDH class prototype with their own tub when they can literally make an LMDH car in concept, but with their own tub and then just homologate it as a Lamar hypercar. Am I misunderstanding things? Isn't the difference between Lamar hypercar and Lamar DH just in the latter being more limited in many ways to keep costs low? Uh, it, it's it's moved much closer in that direction of late, um, and it's the chassis side of things that has been the major difference in terms of the potential budget. Why did Ferrari want something different? Hashtag because Ferrari, I think is what it comes down to, and never was it so. Is this a real stance from them? We know, and I'm, I'm sure you could feed in as well, MP, as to what the skinny is from um, the, the uh, IndyCar family about Ferrari's uh, I wouldn't say courting, certainly mentioning yeah. that they'd be considering an IndyCar or a WC program in addition to their F1 program. But before we get into the WEC side of things, what, what what's the kind of the, the skinny from what's going on with IndyCar and Ferrari? Graham, what is the name of the thing that falls out of the back of bulls? 
Well, that's what we have here. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is just garbage. This is posturing. This is nonsensical. This is actually, though, the most Ferrari thing. The names change of the folks who make these comments over the years. Again, you can assign them to a wide variety of folks. They love to use the media, the fake news media. They love to fire in fake news and use that to what they believe is to their benefit to affect change with whatever Formula One-based regulation uh, they're displeased with. So for those who believe that although Ferrari has had the full opportunity for decades to create IndyCar motor, if not make a chassis of their own back in the day when that was allowed, Ferrari could have come to IndyCar at any point in time. Last year, this year, you name it. We know, of course, 1986 or so, they did actually build a car that did not end up racing. But nonetheless, this is not a new thing, Graham. And this is where maybe some of the perspective that I think gets lost. We know that Ferrari, through Delara, put together a glorious 333 SP on the prototype front back in the day. Obviously, there were many true factory Ferrari prototypes before that. But they've had the opportunity and the money and the personnel to play in world rally, offshore powerboat racing, ice racing, uh, Red Bull air races. They can do anything they want because they are big and prestigious and have a lot of money. They have not. Magically, my friend, when they're really grumpy about the new budget cap in Formula One, well, all of a sudden, they start popping off and saying, well, then maybe we need to go here and go there. Not necessarily leaving Formula One, of course, because we don't want to be that caustic in our wording. But, yeah, yeah, we're going to go play some other places, too. Again, you could have all along. Magically, once this budget cap gets put in place, that's when these interests start cropping up. Yeah, I don't buy it. But here's the weird thing. Their timing's off this time. And their timing is off because of what we're now going through. And all of a sudden, the what they would have seen as being the spectre of budget capping might have to become an essential. And all of a sudden, they're going to be in a position where if the, uh, the cap is actually uh, imposed upon them, in other words, to save the potential losing of you know, teams multiple in the, uh, in the uh, Formula One World Championship – then we might be in a situation where they've got an embarrassment, a literal embarrassment of riches in terms of their technical ability and their staffing. There's no need as well with this budget cap for the men and women working at Scuderia Ferrari to be the casualties. There's nothing, you know, there's no need for this budget cut to be something where uh, the human capital, human capital is the big cost. But again, I don't know how deeply we need to delve into this. Because these words are coming from Ferrari. If it were coming from almost any yeah. other manufacturer, we'd take them seriously. I think, I think the answer to the question, though, because I don't want to be, how can I put this, a politician about it, um, because uh, we've got politicians around the world that are not very good at answering actual questions, is why would, if they were to do this in a, 
uh, in a real world environment that that might be a possibility. Why would they want that? Hashtag because Ferrari, because they would want to have that opportunity to have an advantage over everybody else because Ferrari. And there is something peculiarly, not uniquely, but peculiarly Ferrari about that. There is a set of rules here. We can see all the common sense about why you've got that set of rules. But because we're Ferrari, we'd like something, uh, another set of rules to apply to us so that we can get the opportunity to do something that is peculiarly Ferrari. Nothing to stop them branding any chassis as a Ferrari at all. Delara is one of the four LMP2 manufacturers. They could do an LMP8 chassis and pay the fee and call it a Ferrari. They could do that. I've no doubt whatsoever they could do that. When I asked the question about this of a couple of people that we most certainly would know, the answer was literally every option is still on the table for major manufacturers to get them in. That is only going to have become a more prominent uh, direction of conversation whilst we've been going through the crisis we're currently going through and with the near certainty that some bodies that uh, would have expressed interest privately or semi-publicly will be unlikely to be in a position to cash it, you know, to, to actually put the money on the table when we get to the end of this in, you know, three, six, 12, 18 months. So it, it's an interesting one. Why are they asking for something different? Hashtag because Ferrari. Final thing to throw in here. You know, sometimes when you find out that a manufacturer is going to do something in a racing series and you read it and it's news like it's real news oh hey toyota is coming to the wec awesome that's new news it's entirely possible for ferrari to explore indycar explore hypercar lmdh whatever make a decision and then announce they're doing it on the back of this formula one budget cap thing that they're the most pissed off about of any constructor in f1 that they're exploring these things in the media again you have to look at how folks do things if they wanted to do it they could many manufacturers choose not to tip their hand and connect with a sanctioning body say we're in do it and then off they go um Keep in mind that they're using the media in ways that benefit them. Let's go to. Are you, su- are you, are you suggesting that our listeners should not put in an advanced order for that hard to get Ferrari IndyCar hat? No, you're on to something right there. You are definitely mm. on to. Now, granted, they do have Ferrari IndyCar underwear. Um, yes, underoos. Those are quite. You know who those l- would look good on? Lawrence Van Tour. Of course. Of course. Of course. Our assless chap wearing sex robot model Lawrence Van Tour. We're just coming up with any reason every episode now to throw in some sort of really misguided link to Lawrence Van Tour because we love the guy. Uh, he's the best. Let's go to Cookie Monster FL, which I assume is front left uh, corner and tire. What is both of your collective gut feeling with regarding to spectator events? What policies do you both foresee put in place to allow spectators to return? And what are some hurdles people may not be considering at the moment with regard to fan-attended races? Graham, I think this is going to be one, like Ferrari, 
you're going to need to park for a moment and delve into because before we started recording, we spent a good while just pontificating about mm-hmm. this topic in relation to Lamar and Lamar alone. Uh, we did. I mean, I mean, I think that the reality is this. Uh, it is not going to be the call of the race organizer as to what they're allowed to do here. It's going to be the call of uh, insert um, potential well, um, regulation from a national, regional and local level. And in most cases, all three of the above. So there's going to be an absolute morass of regulation that will need to be cleared before public attendance is going to be allowed in any regard whatsoever, let alone the absolutely enormous crowds at, for instance, that are on 24 hours, the Indy 500, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, at the moment... The common sense race organisers at the moment are just beginning that discussion of what will need to be in place to allow racing at all behind closed doors. Uh, you then get into the second uh, level, which is racing that is not behind closed doors, but you're not allowed in the paddock or the pit lane. So, the, you know, I think it's going to be a long time before we have any kind of autograph session, for instance, and any kind of pit walk. And paddock walk, I think, is a long time in the future. Months and months and months is my guess at that. Um, and possibly not until we actually get a vaccine and some kind of cure. I think life is going to be very different for the foreseeable future. That then gets into just how much fun is that for some of the competitors? Not just, uh, you know, uh, we as interested observers, whether or not that be unionized media or our listeners as paying public. Uh, because, by the way by no means certain that we, the media, will be allowed to attend many of those events either. Can you share uh, so something as well, and it's not Lamar, but it is, no, is similar. Uh, the So we're talking about cleaning. A concept yep. of cleaning between drivers yeah. in the so same this is, this, car? <laughs> this, is, this is the... Um, the measures that are going to be put in place. So we've had th- this week, we've had three European based racing organizations announcing at least part of what the measures are going to be to come back to racing. One of them is the NLS, previously known as the VLN, so the Nordschleife Nürburgring Championship, uh, with their paddock arrangements. So there will be no garages there. It'll be all done on a segregated paddock basis. GT Open, which is the, if you like, the competitor to SRO's GT um, competitions in Europe. But the one with the most comprehensive explanation as to what they intend to do has been GT World Challenge Europe, previously the Blancpain GT Championship or Series. And uh, amongst the things that they're talking about are indeed the restrictions on who will be allowed to come. So no VIP guests, for instance, no public. Um, There will be very limited availability of passes for anybody other than essential um, uh, personnel for the teams. Uh, No media other than the series media uh, operatives and designated series photographers, for instance. Um, This is what they call their phase one things. But you're right. One of the things that's not yet in that as a rule, but they are considering is whether or not they might need to put in some kind of proposal to uh, mandate disinfecting the cars between drivers and in those cases you would therefore need a minimum pit stop time to make sure that's done properly and whatever you think about all of that my concern here in a world where you've got pro-am racing across the world 
is if you're the guy funding that to fund your fun, is it fun? If you can't have your friends or your family, you can't have your VIP lunch. And by the way, this is not aimed at SRO. This, I, I think, is going to be a kind of a broad framework, which is likely to apply on a much wider basis. Is that fun? Is that something that's going to be something where people want to put down a six or seven figure sum for a season of racing in those circumstances? This is a major challenge for this sport, this industry, to make sure that we've got something in place that actually keeps people safe, but something in place as well that if we are going to get back to racing, that we're going to have people that want to do that. You caught me muting you and listening, but eating a scone <laughs> to try and finish my breakfast. A scone? And I'm yeah, not it's a ed- scone, not, not a biscuit, a scone. Correct. And I'm not wow. going to edit this out because, damn it, we're just, this is the let your hair down, let folks hear <laughs> what this show is truly like, babe. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I can tell you that Rosie's walking joined, across uh, in front of me, by the way, putting her tail on the <laughs> mic. So, I mean, this is just I, I, this is just us. This is our lives. Uh, uh, by the way, I have been joined here in the uh, in the GGHQ at the bottom of the Goodwin Household Garden, uh, where I record uh, my part of the show by Oscar the Husky, um, because because. I came through the kitchen to come back down here. Now, when you come into our kitchen, the thought occurs to our canine friend that perhaps the, um, well, Nirvana for him is the fridge. And it's it's possible the fridge could have been opened. And if he thinks there's possibility the fridge has been opened, then there might be possibility of, for him, what is crack cocaine? Ham. Ham might be involved here. <laughs> and he's looking at me at the moment with his head cocked to one side, slightly confused as to why I'm actually talking clearly about him but without actually offering anything that might be designated in his tiny mind as a treat. So he will leave us at some point in the next 30 to 40 seconds, but at the moment, looking at me slightly bemused and uh, with his nose on my desk to see whether or not he can smell what he's hoping is going to be a sandwich. Clearly no sandwich here. Today on the Pets of Twisk, brought to you by <laughs> Cooper Ham and Justice Meats and Toronto Elk and bell racing <laughs> delicacies um, so can i just throw in one little obscure thing that fell into my head while you were discussing the concept of disinfecting vehicles the mm-hmm. inside the cockpit of vehicles between driver yep. changes for those who've seen the inside of a sports car prototype gt touring car whatever it might be those tend to be clean we're talking professional ones they tend to have some room that you can move around inside them prototypes less so but you can move around you can clean most areas get to most areas but there are some challenges for sure in the amount of content inside those vehicles a lot of things, whether it's wires, whether it is fire system, whether it's radio, all the electronics, obviously, could be drink bottle system, could be a battery. Uh, usually you'll have, might have something related to the fuel cell, some sort of access plate or panel, headrest, seat, uh, just on and on and on. If we're talking about disinfecting, Graham, and again, yep. could be wrong here, but to my knowledge, 
most disinfecting liquids or wipes contain a fair amount of alcohol, if not a lot. And if it's not alcohol, maybe it's some other thing, but it's caustic, it's killing, and it's probably very flammable. So knowing that we're not talking about clear, easy, readily accessible surfaces, just right angles everywhere, nothing. Oh, there's usually a roll cage, possibly, if it's not a prototype. Uh, But there's a lot of things in here. So if one were to try and disinfect a cockpit between drivers, A, yeah, if you're going to truly disinfect, I mean, really get in there and scrub and wipe and you, you, you name it. It's going to take two people, I would guess, 15 to 20 minutes at least. If we're talking doing a real job, not a token, uh, we just kind of rubbed on a couple of readily available surfaces. But really, truly, if you're going to do the job, it takes a long time. I say that as a guy who's had to do this many times and not killing virus level of decontamination just try and clean this thing up having just come off track takes a long time so that's one thing other thing again knowing just trying to think of methods if you're spraying a liquid even just using some sort of disinfectant towelette time type of thing you're probably going to leave some flammable liquid somewhere in a little nook a little cranny that wasn't quite easy to get to and clean up I don't know if I love the idea of using things that make fire to clean something between pit stops, knowing that there's 0% you're going to get all of it mopped up before that driver goes, the next driver goes back out. This just sounds like rampant stupidity. This sounds like it sounds like a great idea. Practical application. I don't know how you do this and say, oh, yeah, that's safe. I, th- I think what they've got to do is they've got to find a level which is going to be practical and useful. I mean, you know, it may very well be that the argument wins the day that that is something you don't have to do. Bearing in mind, it, it might be they have to mandate, for instance, visors have to be down, have to be down, uh, in which case there is effectively zero chance of the infection leaving the driver that's getting out of that car and uh, being deposited anywhere in the car because that is presumably what they're trying to avoid because pretty clearly there'll be a lot of hands on that car before the first driver goes but they should be by mandate have their entire body covered in flame proof overalls underwear gloves helmets boots etc 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 so there should be Unless they've got into that uh, into that environment uh, in a way in which it could be putting the other driver at risk, as long as the visor is down, I don't see the possibility that anything's happened in that car that wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, and there would have is that to just be. As, is it as simple as that? You've got to, you've got to drive with the visor down. Well, that plus also, I think just we need to implore some sort of yeah, it happens sometimes in endurance races, but please don't wet the seat and please you know (laughs) please try not to uh do bombs away here have a code brown uh because that could certainly be a contamination issue so i don't know man i i I get the we want to be as super safe as we can if the drivers who have been 
hopefully screened before they start the race to believe that you would then need to disinfect as they swap in and out. I, I don't fully grasp that level of need. I'm not saying yeah. you can ever be too safe. This seems like we're just abandoning logic a bit. So let's, uh, let's move on. We're going to go to Jose Tapia, who says, Oh, hey, someone's at the front door, and I'm not editing this out. I'm just leaving it in. Uh, Jose says, Link and company, uh, to my knowledge, are the closest motorsport has to a Chinese manufacturer in some form of mainstream racing category, that being TCR. Okay. He asks, how likely do you think a Chinese manufacturer will jump into Le Mans hypercar or maybe any other category besides I'll, TCR? I'll make this one long enough for you to go answer the door, should I? No, 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 not at all. I have the, so, the, the, the ring answer, system, so I can see who delivered it and maybe what they delivered. So now we're rolling, fantastic. man. So, so the answer here is: I think there's every likelihood we'll see Chinese manufacturers in some form of mainstream motorsport, other than uh, WTCR, reasonably soon. Remember, you've got Chinese companies that own pretty mainstream brands now um, across uh, Europe, etc. Geely, for instance, own Volvo, amongst other things. Um, so the the answer here is. There's certainly been approaches to some of those Chinese conglomerates to try to persuade them to come and play. Uh, Timing is going to be interesting. It's a matter of what their ambitions are for either their core brands or for their halo brands. Same with the South Korean manufacturers. We've we've talked before on the show, MP, about Hyundai and about Kia. Um, and for that matter, about Sangyong uh, coming and doing racing uh, beyond their kind of core products. Those are the kind of companies that are probably in the next phase. Hyundai pretty clearly beginning to move now towards, you know, with their N uh, performance uh, brand or sub-brand to doing more in terms of motorsports. It'll be interesting to see who's next. Uh, Am I counting out the fact we'll get a Chinese manufacturer in the first wave? Not at all. Um, I think at the moment it would be a surprise if they'd be in the first wave. Uh, but I'd be actually surprised if we don't see those kind of emerging programs coming in the next pff, three to five years. It may well be they've got money, more money to spend than some of the more established brands in the Western world. Uh, for that, we're going to have to wait, uh, hashtag wait and see, uh, as to what comes out at the other end of you know these current woes. We wrote just 24 hours ago uh, on the back of some uh, media reports coming out of France that uh, the uh, Renault-Nissan conglomerate, uh, parts owned by the French government, by the way, are considering plans, which we'll hear about next week, uh, that might lead to the closure of three major plants, one of which is the sole manufacturing plant for the Renault Alpine sub-brand in Dieppe, historic mm. plant there. Uh, and that being the case, what does that mean for effectively Renault's non-F1 motorsports arm. Doesn't sound good. I'm hearing all sorts of things, including potentially that people might be interested in acquiring that brand. But uh, bear in mind that that is one of the brands that has been mentioned as being a potential taker for LMDH. That might be the kind of issue that comes out of left field and removes a player from the table. Boo. Let's go to... Don't know if you've ever heard of this entity... Miggins Motorsport says, feels weird doing this on here. 
talking about posting a question on our Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page rather than on the tweeters. Yes, this does Ooh. feel weird. Um, you need to say five uh, hail vantors uh, as some sort of uh, <laughs> penance for this. Uh, right, gentlemen, here's one. Well, this is listed for another category, but, you know, our pal Ryan Kish, who puts these together, he had a little bit of fun of spreading things around in categories where they didn't necessarily belong. He says, do either of you believe there will be enough OEM interest in hypercar or LMDH for both sides of the Atlantic to support cross-championship efforts? I, hashtag me personally, great use, you're now out of the doghouse, Miggins. Uh, don't think the ACO will accommodate the brand recognition that IMSA teams need for their factory teams to see it as viable for anything other than the French race and vice versa for Daytona Sebring. Now, I know I did a little bit of yappity yapping on this last week, but Graham, why don't you do so? Um, I think the answer is there is potential for there to be enough, certainly. Uh, there are some real unknowns right now, today unknowns as to what's financial state and for that matter what kind of level of board making board decision making uh, process is going to be in place that will allow those to go forward is there today enough interest to accommodate uh, worthwhile grid levels uh, for both wec and um and for imsa in 2022 yes do I expect that it's definitely going to be 2022? My guess right now is that there might be the marketplace might turn and say, we need a little bit more time to put this together. So it's a matter of whether or not you push the go button with a bare minimum or whether or not you wait. Bear in mind, WEC are potentially in a slightly better situation, potentially in a slightly better situation, in that their uh, earlier go dates for hypercar which is now effectively you know, a balanced formula with LMDH, that's what the intention is, should be there a year earlier than that. So we could actually get to the stage here where there's a kind of staggered rollout, but we've got to hope, MP, that there are enough uh, OEMs, manufacturer teams, that survive the current crisis with budgets in place and in hand that are going to be sufficient to get these cars on track in one or both of those fine series that we cover here on the weekend sports cars. The, the, the problem here at the moment is, look, between MP and I, we could, but we're not going to, give you a list of those we believe have been in the various rooms, meetings uh, and discussion forums that could potentially sign up for the LMDH formula. And it's a fairly impressive list. I think I'm right in saying MP, yes? Yeah. Uh, but we're not going to do that uh, for several reasons. One is because we're not. Okay, we're, we're not. No, no, we're not going to do that. But there are, you know, there are names that some some people listening in, if they've read the things that you write for Race and I write for Daily Sports Car, uh, will have read. There'll be some names that you haven't yet read, and some of those names are pretty big names too. Lotta. But being being in a group discussing the technical regulations um, was never a guarantee that those would emerge as real-world, multi-million-dollar or multi-million-euro programs. And it sure as hell isn't right now uh, with the machinations that are currently un un uh, ongoing worldwide about what it is you get back to racing and, more to the point, back into a meaningful level of economic activity. You know, plants close down around the world. 
uh, massive reductions in the numbers of road cars actually being sold because, of course, people have been locked down. Uh, so I think the UK, it was 97% down year on year uh, in the month of April from memory. Uh, and that's not a surprise, but that's beginning to kind of open up next week, I believe. The car showrooms will open up again uh, when we start to get into, into June. So we might then start to see whether or not um, some of that ground can be recovered. Can there be enough to fulfil both? Yes. And in terms of what we believe could and should be out there, I would expect everything else being equal, that that would be the case. Problem is, not everything else is equal. And we simply don't know yet what order of priority or otherwise any of those brands are going to apply to a mainstream motorsport program, albeit with a hybrid drive uh, nod towards electrification, but one that is based on an internal combustion engine. We just don't know. And I think we're going to have to be patient and, yes, hashtag wait and see. The number of folks in on those conversations, I've seen that number go up uh, from yep. what I've, again, from what I've been told, not claiming that to be factual, but I've heard that the, uh, the numbers are indeed on the rise, which is, which would be pretty darn impressive. Uh, last one here for Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aco. I might even <clears throat> be the one to field this. Comes from Matt Anderson, an efficient man. Just one T in Matt, because why do you need two? Says Porsche's declared their intent to enter LMDH. I don't know if they declare their intent to enter. Mm. I believe they declared their intent to explore. Um, yes, correct. Not hypercar, which would mean that they would have to use one of the approved constructor chassis to base their car around. This would be the first time in Porsche's history that they would be using a customer chassis for their factory prototype effort. Uh, says the uh, 96, 97 Le Mans prototypes were a TWR project. Says with Porsche having more engineering and design expertise as well as Le Mans experience and overall wins than the approved constructors combined, would they really rely on a lesser constructor to design the car they'll be relying on to win Le Mans and be the basis for their customer sales? Um, and a couple other notes here, uh, just closing with, I can't imagine Porsche would want to share an off-the-shelf uh, base chassis with, say, someone else. Uh, such are the rules for LMDH slash DPI. Well, a uh, couple quick things here. The TWR chassis was a Jaguar, period. Mm -hmm. It was thusly modified. It also carried a not built by Mazda V10, but badged as a Mazda, uh, then had its roof removed and was repurposed for the Porsche project. That chassis was never a Porsche project to begin. No, so need to clarify that. And secondly, we can add the possibly Graham most forgotten factory related affiliated Porsche prototype effort, that being 2009 Grand Am using Riley chassis Ooh. to compete with their flat six motors in the back. I believe it was a flat six. Um, 
that the, was the, 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 the two different Porsche engine used in DP. You can have a look in the book. It's right yeah. there. Hey. I think they used the flat. Didn't they use the flat six in one? And wasn't the KM V8 in another one? Correct. So that was independently yep. developed, I think, by the Lozano brothers. Okay. Uh, LSP Lozano something porting. Um, that was done and used by, I believe, a debuting action express racing team which won wow on uh on its again was that their debut 2009 at the rolex 24 uh this being a team kind of sort of fashioned out of what was uh, brumos racing um Mm -hmm. if not kind of sort of pretty directly fashioned out of that uh so yes that was a truly independent program there that was later kind of sort of vaguely embraced by porsche uh as I hear my wife kicking off the printer behind us. Again, we're keeping all this stuff in. It's just how we're getting down today. Uh, But this 2009 effort, Matt, was indeed a Porsche paid-for event. Uh, This was with the, I guess, global recession taking place, uh, definitely the North American recession taking place uh, towards the latter stages of 2008, that led to the conclusion, the winding down of the Penske Porsche RS Spider LMP2 effort. And there was a very strong uh, intent slash desire to do something in LMP1 that was tabled as a project for 2009, pushed to possibly 2010 and beyond. There was a contract still in place with Penske for 2009. And although we saw, Graham, that Audi, for example, binned its championship-winning, ultra-successful ALMS program with its, I guess, the, the final models were the R10 TDIs, they exited the ALMS at the end of 2008 in response to this recession. Uh, Porsche, on the other hand, had a valid contract with Penske. Penske was not keen to see that go. And with no high-dollar ALMS thing to do and no LMP1 program to succeed to, to succeed it immediately, uh, they came up with a working concept of, well, we need to do this for one more year and wait and see if we are actually going to go LMP1 with you all. So where can we keep doing motor racing together in the most inexpensive manner possible? Ding, ding, ding. Let's go canned ham racing. And so that is indeed what they did. Uh, It was sponsored by Verizon, sponsored by Crown Royal, Cask, whatever number. So that meant that Grand Am um, slash NASCAR uh, contributed some funding as well to help make that happen. But yeah, nonetheless... Uh, indeed, Porsche has gone racing, uh, what, within the last 11 years, using a chassis and bodywork and all kinds of things that were not their own. So just wanted to throw that in, Graham, on this. Thoughts on Matt's greater question, though, of does this defile their good name by uh, buying things from folks not named Porsche to make a prototype? No, I think and I think there's there's real world um, expediency likely to come in here. Uh, the future for me for LMDH in terms of its sustainability, as we said last week and I think the week before, probably the week before that, 
is going to be defined by not just the factory efforts here, but by having the potential or actuality of customer cars. Uh, do I mean by that that immediately Porsche will come out and, uh, and sell customer cars? No. Do I think that uh, the, the, that might be under consideration right now a potential year two customer program? Yes, I certainly do. Uh, and that lends itself to a further discussion, doesn't it? Which is Porsche are not a standalone company. They are part of a much wider group. And that wider group has got some very potent brands in endurance racing uh, in its portfolio, including Bentley, Lamborghini, Audi, for instance, uh, amongst that portfolio. Uh, could we be talking here about investments in a platform that could be a multi-platform uh, LMDH program? We could, and there's lots of reasons why in the current in the current situation that would make a lot of sense. It would certainly mean that you could have two parallel programs in two parallel championships uh, with some cost-saving measures applied to it that could potentially come together for a couple of races per year and raced against each other rather than going head-to-head in a full world championship. You're using the word that could, could a lot here, which is maybe the, an indicator the, the, of where I, we're Like at. I said, the enemies, the, the enemies right now are could and might, but it is a, it is a possible um, thing that would be, I would imagine, looked at at a kind of corporate level. At the moment, all we know is that Porsche have uh, said publicly they are uh, they are evaluating LMDH. And that's been the most positive statement from a major player that's not currently involved at that level that's been made thus far. I would not be remotely surprised to find that that uh, ended up being an expanded VAG customer motorsport type thing. And exactly, by the way, the same way as they do their TCR racing. Well, there you go. Because all the, all the VAG TCRs are all built on the same line at Cupra in Spain. The Audis are built there, the VWs are built there, the Seats, the Cupras are built there uh, on the same production line. Could that be a model that um, the customer sport side of the VAG brands uh, comes together and finds a happy place? Well, here's hoping, because that could be quite cool, couldn't it? Hashtag Vag ticker. Uh, <laughs> I think we are done. With your world of Weck Aslam Elms Aco, where do we go next, my selector? There's only one place Is we there? really should be going next. Okay. And that's IMSA. Oh. Well, lob, foist, and hurl. <laughs> and the, the immediate question that comes forward is about a bit of news that uh, broke here in the UK yesterday evening. I know you were quick to the punch on this one. And that was the uh, the announcement. I say announcement. It kind of almost kind of trickled out, which is such a shame. There's been so many bits and bobs coming out of the Pratt Miller Corvette racing side of things. Of course, the biggest story uh, until this point was that the team are pulling out of Le Mans. We dealt with that one on the show last week. But this is the end of an 18-year stellar run as crew chief uh, at Corvette Racing by Danny Banks and Danny going off to do his own thing, MP. Tell us what you know, and then I'll throw a couple of questions at you. Yeah, this had been in the works for a little while and got the the inkling slash nod that this was coming, uh, I guess, earlier this month. Oh, boy, this one landed hard. It, as I said to Dan 
when I spoke with him yesterday to get some quotes for the story. Truly, uh, it's hitting me like when I think it was Martin Pass who reached out, uh, however many years ago it was, to say, hey, tomorrow Alan's going to announce his retirement. And it was just, it was a heavy thing knowing, <laughs> and I, I yelled at Dan a little bit, not seriously yell at him, but I'm like, damn you, uh, talking to people is going to be less fun now. Um, no, you can't do this to me. And he had a big laugh. Um, just one of those things, Graham, where you have somebody that has been such an integral part of the sport for so long has loved the sound of the birds, by the way. That is a nice touch here. Um <laughs> He's just been such a big part of what we do, and I know that he comes across each year for Le Mans such, so maybe not as big of an impact in Europe, but Dan is among a decreasingly important subsector of folks in our sport, and that is the legendary crew chief. Mm. Growing up, boy, those names were everywhere. An IndyCar could be a George, excuse me, a George Bignotti. In Formula One, it could be you know legendary Lotus mechanic Bob Dance. In NASCAR, it could be this person. Run on down the line, man! You got some great bird sounds for us. Um, <laughs> this is just something that was once a big part of motor racing. The yeah. famous crew chief and not fame for any hollow reasons but just excellence personality presence uh presence as well yeah just you boy you there were team managers and team principals but who do most people go to to talk to well you want to talk to the chief mechanic the slash crew chief because he or could be she you know really they're the ones with their finger on the pulse of the team in the sport they are the equivalent of the head coach in yeah. we might say in whatever form of other sport that you like they're in charge of the team morale the way they do things innovations seemingly these things all flowed forth from a primary person in the garage and i'm not saying that there aren't those folks today absolutely are they just aren't living in that place on a public level uh from a a place of really being well well known and so with dan again i don't want to say dying breed but there just aren't many left like him where when i think of corvette racing of course there are many names that come to mind but he's the guy that has embodied it more than anyone else. And it, so it, you're right. his I mean, loss, yeah. it's like, wow. I, again, I'll enjoy the conversations with many others there. But that guy was really the the pulmonary system. I, they, they, they down there for 18 years, by the way. And um, with bizarre timing, just a couple of days before that, we run a story talking about certainly for Le Mans, not for the, the core IMSA program, a man that had been at Le Mans even longer. And this is, bizarrely, a bloke I used to work with in my day job uh, who stumbled in to a role with the Corvette racing team, initially holding the pit board the first year at Le Mans through a friend of a friend 
who was Andy Pilgrim. Um, but Dan, not one of the six souls that was there for all 20 years, but boy, oh boy, did he make an impact. I, I guess I'm trying to think, that because we've got a lot of questions, by the way. Ryan Terpster has asked a question here, others too, asking questions here about stories you'll have about Dan at uh you know in in the uh, in the performance of his duties but when you think about corvette racing you've got the doug fiends that allows you know it's it's like like any team it's a kind of hierarchical structure and most teams there'll be that level of respect for the guy at the top you know you're the generals the colonels if you like but dan sergeant major i think don't you yeah yeah and it's the guy who commands ultimate respect and my memories of danny binks are generally tend to be when things have gone wrong. When things have gone wrong and that car comes back in a steaming mess and he's always the first guy to the car. Always the first guy to the car and then things get done. And it was always that. And, you know, you know him way more than I do here, MP. What stories do you recall from Dan through those years? A couple of them jump out. Uh... I enjoyed speaking with Dan mechanic to mechanic more than anything. And so just hearing the passion projects that he had going on, I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but we were talking about the then new 24 hours of lemons series, the $500 junkers or $500 or less junker series, you know, 24 hour race and whatnot, just pure hilarity and the pride in which he spoke of finding, I forget what it was. It was like it was some old ratty Toyota Supra. And they're going to throw a big old Chevy V8 in the front of it. And, you know, we'll pretend that it cost $500 or less. But listening to Dan, who is a former race car driver and a very good one, competed at the 24 Hours of Daytona. Uh, in IMSA, listening to Dan tell just the creativity and the passion behind we're going to go race in the 24 hours of lemons with a V8 powered <laughs> Toyota Supra and himself, some of the other Corvette racing crew members and such. It was just so cool, really. And, and that was of the the seemingly endless things flowing forth from Dan that just were reminders of how this is such a different person in his role. You can get at times the crew chief who is very aware of the importance of their role and they carry themselves in a manner which transmits their understanding of how important they are. Yeah. Never Dan Bink. <laughs> Never Dan Binks. And again, arguably among the most popular, best known folks on pit lane in IMSA or an American Le Mans series race. I mean that truly not among chief mechanics, anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a guy who is just known and beloved by fans. And so he could absolutely let that go to his head, let an ego start to form been doing this 38 years full time right this is a man long married adult children you know he, he is not a young man he has done enough in the sport won the better part of 20 professional championships Lamont, i don't know how many times 
every other major race in sports cars, I don't know how many times, he could be a raging a-hole if he wanted to because he'd done enough to earn that career-wise. And yet, he's the guy talking about, oh, my God, we just stuffed a V8 in a freaking Supra, and we're going to go race at this, right? It's just, again, just such a beautiful thing about the guy. Uh, I'll share one other quick story that jumps out. And he and I... Uh, we, he said, let's give it a, you know, let's give it a couple of weeks. Um, and then let's get back on the phone and start capturing some, some tales of his life and career. So I'm going to look forward to that. But one of the, the fun things that I remember was when I think it was my second or third year reporting. Uh, and so this was, I believe 2008 America Le Mans series was at Lime Rock, However things turned out, I don't remember the reasons why, Graham, but I ended up getting to Lime Rock a bit early. And so was there a day or two before on-track activity began. So it just meant that I had time in the paddock to wander around and chat with people and whatever, whatever. So it was under the Corvette racing tent. Dan starts telling me, what was it? I think it was something related to Ron Fellows and maybe Johnny O'Connell. Something about how uh, at Le Mans, which I think had happened somewhat recently. Again, I don't remember all the timing, but it was a tale, recent tale, something involving Le Mans, two of their star drivers, and how, man, doing the post-race cleanup and prep is never fun from that race. And he was usually the one with the mop bucket having to uh, look after the seat and the seat well in those Corvettes because it was filled with a certain yellow fluid uh, of drivers just letting bladders go. And so it was just a hilarious story. It was a classic Dan Banks crew chief, again, uh, telling me this story. It wasn't some sort of, oh, hey, top secret, come here. Hey, quote, off the record, I got something to tell. It was just, you know, him relating this story to me, a guy in the media, whatever, we're talking. I'm like, ah, that's great, you know, whatever. Just made for a funny little notebook sidebar. And as often happens, you know, these little sidebars, they're just meant for to pique one's interest or give you a smile. Plus (laughs) the thing of drivers peeing in the seat. It's been going on since the first race ever took place, right? It's a non-unique thing. It never stops being funny, though. Well, the first I guess dressing down an argument I ever got into with a press agent was the following morning. And there's a guy who I've known really well for a long time. Who's actually a really good friend, uh, Rick Vogelin, a uh, former Chevy racing Corvette racing PR man who came into the, the media center the next morning after it had gone up. Um, and this is in front of everybody in the media center. You know, better, you know, better. You know, that wasn't on the record. You heard, like, I guess going off. And I'm like, I'm trying to piece together, like, what are you talking about? Oh, he told you about about the pee and the whatever, and it's embarrassed everybody. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, really? There was no kind of ramp up? (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, it was like firing up the Corvette engine. There's no warming up. It's just, so (laughs) anyways, and he just, you know, levels me. And I'm like trying to push back i'm like no this wasn't some top secret thing uh, he wasn't even there anyways so what was fun about this was dan uh feeling comfortable to share this story with me 
knowing that I'd use it. It was used. PR agent got super spun out and uh, tried to yell back at him. Didn't want to hear it. He left. He came in, did a flyby, yelling at me, kind of kept walking as I'm saying, no, you're wrong, kept walking, and then walked out the other door saying, you know better, and uh, was gone. It was like, wow, that was a surreal 30 seconds. So anyways, I found Dan a little bit later in the day. I'm like, well... I guess we're not doing any drivers peeing in the seat stories anytime soon. And he had a big laugh. He's like, yeah, I have no idea what they got all spun out about. But come on, man. I'm the one who actually has to deal with it. What the hell are they getting mad at you about? So <laughs> ah, just love the guy. And again, I'm someone who's go. had to clean, clean pee out of seats before as well. So a little bit of brotherhood there. But that's maybe the, the best answer to the number of questions that came in. Dan. Well, I should say, by the way, J- James uh, Counter and Michael Metropolis, amongst the others, asking that question. As I try to log back into my computer, because the whole darn thing's gone down now to find the next question. There we go. So, Dan, a brother. That is the best way I would describe him. Not a famous guy, not a person of whatever status and achievement, just a brother. And, wow, uh, going to miss yeah. having that brother in our presence just in case dan's listening to this congratulations for what you achieved sir we appreciate it and we appreciate the way you've gone about it as well adam smith next up imsa july 4th could that become a thing do you think the july 4th daytona race will become routine since nascar will be elsewhere for that weekend i don't know if that specific date is going to become a thing but what does stand out is so we've spoken many times leading into this new season. IMSA yeah. is on possibly the smallest budget it has ever had to operate. We've yeah. now gone through this, or we're now in the midst of this pandemic, Adam. We know that they've had to make a lot of cuts with personnel, furlough people, uh, we know that money is not, there's certainly not going to be an improvement in the amount of money that they have. What jumps out here is it might not be the 4th of July, but I do believe we will see as we go forward into 21, maybe it'll become a permanent thing. I think we will see possibly a return of a second standard length Daytona race, which is a thing that used to happen in the original IMSA days, Paul, the Paul Revere 250, and, you know, it happened yep. in Grand Am as well. There'd be two per year. I think we're going to see that. I could also imagine this happening at, I don't want to say many other NASCAR-owned properties, but possibly one or two others for one simple reason. Sanction fees the ability to receive real sanction fees from tracks paying them to come race at non-NASCAR-owned events, I think that's just going to become more and more of a challenge. So if we're talking about the economics of putting on a yearly championship and what is in their best interest, Daytona is a big place to turn on in the morning and run. So I'm not saying it is inexpensive, But I think we might see, Adam, and this is a really smart recognition, I think we might see IMSA, due to some pretty heavy financial constraints, look at, hmm, 
maybe we need to do one or two more events per year or possibly i shouldn't say more let me take that back of the amount of races that we do per year i think we might need to look at traveling to fewer that we don't own and possibly hold replace some of those with some that we do because the cost to do so can be much much lower just throw out here graham that sorry for my voice by the way guys it's not a case of clearing it sexy well that well that's that's a whole different podcast uh my voice has been kind of on the fritz for the last week so uh, i'm drinking liquid and it's not getting any better um this coming on the fourth of july here adam at the same time that nascar and indycar are competing at indianapolis well indycar is there on the road course that weekend and they're going to be on their own road course again something they own indianapolis motor speedway they will be there twice this year and the reason they started going and holding the brick uh, not the, jesus the brick air grand prix uh the indycar grand prix at ims back i think starting in 2014 graham was well they wanted to expand their calendar but do it on the cheap and keep yep. the cost down so sim- same exact thing here adam how do we keep our budget intact by possibly either expanding or at least just staying at the total number of events we're currently holding but possibly turn down the cost for those events well go to the places where you own where you either don't have to pay somebody uh or the places that are currently paying you maybe are looking at not being able to pay you as much or at all that's another concern some of the tracks here's another part of that one and uh, we'll come to a a, a, kind of peripheral point by Alex Eichmuller in a moment, but as a rough guesstimate, how many IMSA staff do you think attend those races? I couldn't tell you. Um, but it's, I, certainly, it's certainly a significant number, isn't it? Yeah, uh, again, there, there aren't and as where, many as there used to be. Yeah, and where are their offices? Well, that would be across the street from Daytona. Which means you're not paying for lodging for those people either. Yeah, just same as IndyCar with their offices across the street as well. So I think there might be something to this. Uh, Sebring being another place, knowing that this is exactly what IMSA is doing, saying, hey, we're going to go hold a standard length race at Sebring as well this year during this compromise schedule. All comes back to how can we put on motor races that cost us the least amount of money and or give us the best chance of increasing profit so i think you're on to something here adam uh when we when we look at the calendar next year we're going to know a couple things are there some circuits that are in a bad way and cannot afford to pay for imsa or any other major series to come there and also will imsa maybe consider just saying hey we have loved you and maybe you aren't experiencing any major issues but you know think we might actually be able to make more money for ourselves if we do it at our own joint so stay tuned uh, th- that by the way is almost exactly the same answer for alex eichmiller asked did, did we think with the revised calendar imsa might have missed an opportunity to go to tracks that don't normally run instead of doing additional races at daytona and sebring new jersey motorsport park and barber come to mind as tracks used recently by imsa that could have been added i think the point here as well by the way is I don't. I think the the prospects of going somewhere new or revisiting have gone down. Why? Because the playbook's out of date. Because 
the learning processes would be longer, the costs uh, in, involved there are going to therefore be greater in terms of the management time. I think you've answered it perfectly, MP. Well, also just consider this as well, Alex. IMSA speaks about its paddock, the teams, the sponsors, the tracks, the manufacturers. They're all referred to as partners. And it's it's not necessarily said in kind of a fake whatever manner. They really do uh, work and think of those circuits uh, where they do go and compete as partners. There is a truly integrated mechanism in how they get down together. And so knowing all of this, yeah, uh, it would be hard for IMSA to say, hey, Mid-Ohio, uh, or hey, again, whatever, VIR, yeah, we're going to go to a track we haven't been to in a long time just because, or who knows, uh, it would break a relationship model that they've really upheld and i don't foresee them wanting to do that or being okay with doing that if there's sheer necessity all right graham due to travel restrictions or whatever else of the 10-ish races we hope to hold this year we've had to knock five of them off because they've all been canceled yeah then if, if we're talking we've just lost half the calendar I would absolutely expect a bit of creativity. The fourth Daytona race of the year <laughs> might be a little bit hard to sell. And, hey, we're going back to Sebring for the ninth time. Uh, again, that might be a bit tough to swallow. So in that scenario, Alex, yeah, I could see, like, oh, my goodness, we just had the slate almost wiped clean. What are we going to do uh, there? Sure. But other than that, you know, if I'm looking at the where things fall, you know, we have uh, Laguna Seca, right? WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca on the calendar. If uh, we had something drastic happen, we're going to, excuse me, the following race. The next race at Mid-Ohio was made impossible for whatever reason. Could I see them reach out to Sonoma and say, hey, we used to go there? Well, IMSA did back in the day, plus ALMS. Um, we're in the area. Can we go there? Sure. Or, hey, could we go up the coast a ways and go to Portland? Sure. Or, again, pick any of the other regions where they might be going to race, but then find that for whatever reasons we've had some things knocked off. Could some location-based creativity come into play at a circuit that was never really part of the, the modern schedule? I think that could be the scenario, but uh, like Graham having to use could and would for an answer just a moment ago, a lot of coulds and a lot of woods that would have to take yeah. place here. Let's round out uh, IMSA questions today with a new name. And we've had lots of new names lately, and you're very, very welcome along for the fun. Justin Fontaine asks one for you, MP, relatively new listener. He says, first-time questioner. He's been wondering if the idea has ever been floated of combining the IMSA Prototype Challenge and Michelin Pilot Challenge divisions into one series. He says, you might have to forgive my ignorance, not a problem, but it would seem that the current six-race PC schedule would fit in almost seamlessly into the existing 10-race Pilot Challenge calendar. I think what he's saying there is that perhaps there would be some races that are Pilot Challenge only, but potentially a smaller number that are joint 
grids. The biggest change it would see on the surface at least would be adjusting the race lengths of the six events, yes indeed, in which the three classes competed together. Would love to get your thoughts. Please do not apologize for ignorance, because if so, every episode would just be Graham and I making about an hour, hour and a half long apology for our own. So you fit in perfectly. Has been floated before, has been discussed. I know under the previous IMSA regime with Scott Atherton in charge, this is certainly something that had come up that had been considered mostly, though, in the name of car counts. Boy, uh, again, at times things have fluctuated could be in what we now call the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series before this, the uh, Continental Tire Series, the GS category numbers have fallen off or ST has fallen off. And is there a way to maybe take the prototype challenge and or the previous version, the Elan-built Mazda-powered prototypes? What kind of way can we get the numbers up since we have dueling prototype training category and tin top gt kind of sort of category that's really the last time i recall this coming up as a yeah we're gonna think about it probably won't happen but we will think about it it's about the only way i believe this might come to pass is if we just see that in whatever instance there's just a, a drastic cut in cars the thing that I think makes this most of a challenge is the speed differential. Not saying yep. that LMP3 cars are brutally fast. but The GT3 pace, basically. Yeah, uh, but if you consider how fast they can go, the lateness in which they can break compared to a GT4 car, which is the, the GS category, and Street Tuner, which... Uh, well, TCR is in there as well, but that kind of second tierish place where you go, okay, those are cool, but they don't have the downforce or the braking capability, and even acceleration-wise, um, those are a couple areas where, if we're talking about when crashes happen, Graham, when clashes take place, it's usually not on the straight. Um, it's usually not in the middle of a rolling corner as well, meaning one that's just a high-speed corner tends to happen in big changes of speed, either coming into a corner or trying to leave. Well, when you have an LMP3 car finding a Audi TCR, yeah, that's going to be the place where, unless it's the pro in both cars, if you have the AM, since these are two training categories, mm -hmm. this is where things start to get expensive. So this is the, the thing that I usually hear, which is the reason why it would not happen. Not that the cars are so drastically different. One goes a million miles an hour. The others are at half speed. It's just a case of they make their speed in very different ways. And so the places where normally passes in significant overtaking would happen would be dive bombs into break zones and or trying to power away out of a corner with a couple of slower cars in the way and maybe getting knocked around out of the way. That's where this gets a little bit expensive. And I think folks in all the classes that would be in this combined <clears throat> challenge effort would come back and say, 
Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Uh, plus, you know, Lord love the good folks who manufacture the Norma chassis. I don't know if they have enough staff to make all the spares required to keep uh, their LMP3s on track. We assume that Liget would, uh, and I know that they aren't the only LMP3 manufacturers, but those two seem to be at the head of the class in terms of yep. car count oh, on this side. So I'd love to see it because I love chaos, but I wouldn't want to see it if I was one who owned and ran <laughs> entries on any of the classes involved because, boy, budgets would spike. That's just done with him, sir. We're going to move along to her general next. And first up there is uh, a guy in a grumpy bear suit, Darusla, who's curious why more European series aren't looking at Paul Ricard as a venue to reopen their seasons. It has an airstrip right there, he says, uh, as indeed it does, as Nick Manazian can tell you, having barrel rolled a Persia onto it. <laughs> um, and it's never really been a big spectator venue outside of F1. Hmm. Is the answer as simple as Paris says no? Well, I can tell you, having covered a, a ton of racing at uh, Paul Ricard, they actually quite often get pretty good crowds there uh, because there has been a tradition of motorsport. And whilst there's not a huge, very local community, it's within um, you know an hour or so of Marseille, huge city. Nice is a little further away, and there's uh, pretty thriving communities down on the coast which are not that far down the road. So we do get pretty healthy crowds for a number of the endurance races that uh, we go to. By that kind of rest, uh, by the way, the airstrip bit, bit of a kind of red herring. Other than a few wealthy gentleman drivers flying their business jets in, that's not that is not going to be a solution for most of the teams. That the stuff will be trucked in uh, to there, and you know, I believe that there's a number of uh, fallback plans being hatched at the moment that uh, potentially have back-to-back weekends for a number of European series that would allow those trucks effectively to go from one to the next. Uh, the teams travelling with them. So the answer is there are a number of series that are looking at Paul Ricard. If you're looking for somewhere in the back of beyond that no one ever turns up, try Manicor. It is literally, there's just nothing anywhere close. I think there's one hotel within about 45 minutes of the place. But um, Paul Ricard, we actually quite like going racing there. Uh, The difficulty is going to be whether or not the infrastructure that you need for a major international race meeting, including are the hotels going to be open, what happens about uh, feeding crews, etc., um, so Ricard is certainly on the list for a number of those championships, uh, but it's not quite as ideal a package as it might first appear. Portimao by attachment, down a little further south in Europe, in Portugal, on-site hotel, very large on-site hotel, very large paddock, which I think is going to be very, very important moving forward. Um, and you know and one road in and out which means that if you're looking to shut that down to the public it's very simple to do that so there's all those kind of things are being uh, considered as well and i believe portimao by the way has already um run a exercise uh, of a shutdown race meeting a kind of behind closed doors race meeting they have trialed that during lockdown in uh, portugal so We'll hashtag wait and see what comes out of the recovery plans of the major European series. Uh, there's no, not going to be any really easy answers, I'm afraid. It talks as well, by the way, MP, and I'm sure you can talk to the US side of this. Rob Chalmers says, how scaled back do you think the paddocks will be when racing returns? Uh, ask me, will, what, uh, what, what does it say? What, will, I be doing, will I be doing venue comms? Will there be as many crew 
press officers, assistants, managers, etc., will be literally business as usual. I can tell you in Europe, it most certainly will not be business as usual. And for my guess would be quite some little time. Uh, I expect there to be an awful lot more space required in paddocks for teams. I think there's going to be a very limited mixing between those teams. I think uh, the point at which fans will be able to come to races is a little way off. The point at which fans will be able to come into the paddock is somewhat further off than that. Uh, in terms of what I'm expecting, personally, professionally, I'm expecting to be some race meetings we won't be permitted to go to. Uh, as a journalist, uh, and I'm waiting to find out what the solution is going to be for those race meetings where I'm due to be calling them for TV. And that principally is the WC races at Spa, uh, at Le Mans and in Bahrain, which are the ones I'm kind of waiting to see what's going on for those as to whether or not we'll be on site or whether or not we'll be doing that remotely. We simply don't know yet. It's a straight answer. But expect the sort of expected here, which is... This is going to be a bit of a long burn, and certainly the kind of access that we've been used to, whether that's as a journalist or as a fan, to the teams and to the drivers, is, I think, a little way in the future yet. I don't know what you're, you're hearing from uh, from what's going on stateside, MP. Interesting thing over here. It will 1,000% influence what happens with IMSA when they return to racing at whatever point, and that is NASCAR having been the first major series, I believe, internationally to go back to the good old racetrack and hold one of the motor races. Their policies, as I have heard directly and also heard anecdotally, are probably going to just be mimicked by other series. IMSA, which is owned by NASCAR, will certainly abide by whatever NASCAR has done and use that as their template IndyCar, I know, has been looking to NASCAR and will probably, on this topic, Rob, do almost everything that NASCAR does. It's sad, and this isn't meant to just be critical of non-NASCAR racing series, but it's always good to see what someone else does, but there's a reason the world has more than one chef. (laughs) Great, this is your (laughs) recipe for this dish. Do we all just make it the way you make it or do we decide hey no we're going to add a pinch more of that and delete this and what we have so far here in the u.s graham is every series that isn't nascar more or less saying well we're just going to do what nascar does and i mean for indycar uh and i just use indycar in our sports car show because they're the only one that i know of uh, right now that has really put a a number and hard cap in place their very first race is coming up on June 6th at Texas Motor Speedway, one and a half mile oval. They have set a number, I believe it's like 648 people, 649 people total allowed at the venue. They have approximately, we'll see what the final entry number is, but somewhere between 24 and 26 cars expected for that event, Graham. They have yep. said 20 people total per entry are allowed. So that takes us somewhere over around over 500, 550 yep. maybe. Again, we'll see. You then throw in the track side staff. So that's from management to public relations to parking to uh, corner workers and officials and such. Uh, you look at the, te- the series side, all the folks that travel to manage and run IndyCar their communication staff, the technical staff, uh, the engineering and, and whatnot, pit lane oversight, 
uh, I'm sure security. Police control. Yep, yep. Security. And so their number is 650 total, 20 per car. And they have said you can make up that 20 however you want, basically. Uh, so that's all the mechanics. That's all the that's truck drivers and strategists. And it could be a girlfriend, a wife, a husband, or whatever it is. So they've left that bit open. On the media side, uh, they are allowing four reporters there. Uh, let's see. They are only allowing the agency that they have hired photographically to shoot the race, along with, I believe, the two employees that Indianapolis Motor Speedway has photographically. Uh, that's I've actually written a column about this. It'll come out next week, which is just... It's the dumbest of dumb things. Uh, the media, just as they were with NASCAR and their return to racing, will be sequestered the entire time, uh, either in the media center or, more likely, uh, in some, at Texas, overlooking the track at some sort uh, in a suite uh, above the grandstands on the front straight. They will enter in in the morning and not leave until they're ready to go home. No interaction with drivers, no going down to pit lane, garages, or otherwise. Any interviews will be done post-race, post-qualifying, whatever, through video conferencing. These are the kinds of things in place. So to the bigger question, what do we think it's going to look like when we do go back? It's going to be strange because IndyCar's communications department has been decimated i think they're going to get a few people back off furlough imsa we know they've furloughed a number of people and some people have been let go altogether uh we would expect some manufacturers graham there are some folks who are retiring taking basically an early retirement some who've Mm -hmm. yet to announce that they have but uh have called and said hey by the way this is what's going on that's going to be the strange thing for us on the inside rob I don't know how strange it will be for those on the outside who, you know, don't care about this stuff or don't know these people. But I can tell you that when I do get to whatever pit lane it is for the first time, I'm going to have to do a bit of a mental accounting of who was standing in that pit box the last time I saw them in 2019 and the differences in front of me. And if I go over to see this team, this manufacturer, this division of the sanctioning body and see those people, whatever. I can guarantee you there are some folks who aren't going to be there whose absences haven't necessarily been announced and made public. So it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird to show up. I almost think of this stuff, Graham, like school, right? You're, you finished 10th grade. You're coming back for 11th. You're all in the same class, but you show up for this first day of school and realize, whoa, where did a lot of the schoolmates that I've been with year after year after year where did many of them go? Uh, I think yep. that's going to be the sensation for a lot of us who work inside the sport. We're going to round out uh, Head General with, uh, oddly, an- another batch of questions about DTM. Our, our listeners do like a question about DTM. Can I throw um, in one here to start from our man Andrew go. Baca, who I think has the best DTM question ever asked? I've just seen it. It's brilliant. With the possible demise of DTM. Please recount your favorite memories from the Grand Am sanctioned US DTM series. <laughs> I think we need an Andrew Backer um, uh, jingle with Tumbleweed 
uh, yes. for that one, uh, but, but if we possibly can. How much but, do you uh, remember yeah, you of that? You might want to recount that tale. Well, yeah, and I don't know how much you got stuck into this at all, but there was a belief in this pre-merger with the America Le Mans series time that Grand Am, which, if you don't know by now, was unloved, had no spectators, had no money coming. It just not. It was thinly, thinly veiled pro am racing. Um, they're looking for something to be more relevant, more exciting, spice things up. And so the thought was, hey, DTM, that'd be cool. Maybe we could start an American DTM series, and it would run with Grand Am. And people who like cool racing, in particular, cool sports car racing who go to those ALMS races and, and don't go to ours, well, maybe we would have some kind of special that we could have. And then maybe people would want to come to our races instead of theirs. So DTM, yay! And it went nowhere. They had meetings, they had multiple meetings. My a friend of mine, Dave Spitzer, who was working for the series then, I don't remember his exact role, but technical directory-ish type person, uh, I know that he had multiple meetings with, what is it, ITR, I believe is the name of it their... It is ITR, yes. Uh, multiple meetings with them, and it was a thing, and it might happen, and how might it happen? What would it be? Would it be repurposed DTM cars? Just, you know, buy them, get used ones, and use them over here? Could there be anything new and original and custom? Who knows? Could it be a American manufacturer bodywork on them? Who knows? But it was a surprisingly long dalliance with the idea something that i think when most of us heard it for the first time said cool would love to see it man that sure would help your events from being ghost towns to okay i maybe now don't fully see how it would happen and then graham there's the so you're kind of sort of saying the the person you're bringing your dating and bringing to the parties is not that attractive physically, mentally, you name it. There's not much that folks are finding very appealing about this person. So you're thinking about trying to go and find the hottest, whatever man or woman, um, to bring with you as well. Well, you'd get more attention. Sure. would kind of poop on the one you're married to though. Right. Um, uh, how's that going to work? So the main thing that you take great pride in is kind of not doing so much. So you want to maybe create something that's more exciting to put alongside it that might make folks kind of further drive home the point of how much the main thing sucks. I think that was the second thought. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, DTF. But aren't you going to kind of spoken kill- by the way? Spoken like a man that's had to go and cover those races. <laughs> uh, it's almost like I had to spend the entire 2009 series as Speed's official <laughs> Grand Am reporter. Oh, yeah, coming off being the official America Le Mans series reporter for two years. Yeah, But, nope. but, you, but you don't resent that. No, don't resent no that. bitterness no, at all. No, no, Made no, no, me no. a better man. Well, tell you what, so, so you can get stuck in a little bit more. Dan Tenoff says... With the demise of the manufacturer-supported era of the DTM, do you think the series organisers will reboot the series as a GT rival to Formula E? All the German makes are in for an electric future anyway. Might make the series relevant to them again. Well, we have had some influence in this area in the week in sports cars because was it last week or was it the week before that I got rather stuck into the Jaguar I-Pace trophy? Yes. 
and yes. they, they cancelled it two days later. So thank, Jaguar clearly listening uh, to the um, to the weekend sports cars. I think the answer here to this question is a pretty simple one. If they're going to reboot it as an electric GT series, it isn't going to be any time soon. Um, because, let's face it, there is no sign of manufacturer commitment to a race series with their electric GT concepts. There are therefore no regulations. There are therefore no teams, no budgets, etc., etc. If they want to come back in two, three, five years and reboot it in that way, good luck to them. But the reality right now, I cannot see a way in which this is going to be anything other than the touring car equivalent of the dead parrot sketch. I really, I cannot see any way forward for DTM. And in part, that has been a disaster of their own making. Um, They have not been a friendly organization to their partners and manufacturers. They certainly have not been a very friendly organization to other race series. So they've been uh, amongst the least popular, I have to tell you, ITR in terms of their attitude to uh, clashing dates uh, uh, against other major uh, sporting operators and that is beginning to come to bear with them as they now start to well, are in, in in full scramble mode to see whether or not they can make lives of the rest of us and salvage something uh, beyond the end of this year i don't expect they can be successful i'm afraid i think we're coming very rapidly to the end of the current dtm era i hope there's a future for them somewhere but I don't see that being anywhere uh, anywhere soon when anything remotely like uh, we've got at the moment. So answering uh, further down here, Jordan Hotwood asking about whether or not that might free up budget for the uh, M8 GTEs to be back racing. No, it's a good excuse for BMW not to spend money internationally. They've already rejected the prospect of doing WEC with those cars. I don't see this being a reason why they would do that uh, again. Uh, James Counter says, do you think the GTM should go down the lines of inviting some of the SPX type uh, efforts from the Nürburgring 24, Glickenhaus, etc.? No, no, there's just nothing there. There is no business model that supports running those expensive cars at expensive race meetings when the only people that would be paying for those race meetings would be those private entrants. The reality is it's been put to the sword. Audi have done that by basically deciding it doesn't meet their current business model and they have, they intend to pack their RS5 train set away at the end of this season and that train set will be put in the loft and we won't be seeing it again. Uh, if you're a fan of the DTM, I'm afraid you've got a world of disappointment coming because I cannot see any way that Gerhard Berger and his team are going to pull a DTM rabbit out of the very messy hat. I'm going to got a text here from Milton Julian, by the way, I didn't turn off my ringer. So it dinged, but Hey, again, this is the just unfiltered how it actually happens show that we kind of sort of clean up a little bit each week. Um, we'll take one more here that I like. We'll mention the only, only thought I have had of how DTM might be saved. And I know that we were asked this last week as well. And I don't think I had a single idea, but it's come to me since using GT3 cars as the basis. A return to Group 5 as the format. And with mad bodywork. Mad bodywork, but completely unrestricted engines as well. And we know, and mm-hmm. I know that last week I said doing just a GT3, turning GT uh, DTM into GT3 
would do nothing for anybody, and I still stand by that. But knowing how heavily restricted many GT3 cars are, or I'm sorry, many supercars are to play in GT3, removing those restrictors, if not allowing modest upgrades and modification on the engine side, so we're talking 700 to 800 horsepower apiece instead of 450 to 500 and I know that there are some GT3 cars that have more power than that, but if we're mm-hmm. talking vehicles that are closer to the extreme of their street version in terms of power and lethality with performance, and we have some outrageous bodywork on them, that sounds a lot like hypercar, true hypercar. And it's DRM, would, isn't it, back in the day? Exactly. This Group 5 formula, which was just so amazing. Think about the old Ford Capris and yada, yada, yada. 935 Porsches. Going down that route, brother, it, since can, the only place this exists in any vague similarity in a professional series today is in America, ends in Trans Am. And there's no technology, though, right? Over here, yep. it's just a tube frame car with a big old V8 stuck up front and cartoonish bodywork. And again, you know, I love it. I say love it. I've loved it forever. This actually sounds like it could be amazing because we have cars that have high technology already. They are pro-am friendly. Now, granted, you dialing up the speed to serious numbers while still having ABS and traction control. This might push some AMs to their limit uh, or go beyond their limit, but still, This, to me, if you just want to do something that's really unique in the marketplace, that does a bit of a callback to history that was once, you know, very, very proud portion of European racing, German racing in general, man, uh, GT3 cars just allowed to be their true selves, un-SRO'd, un-D-retelled, and with crazy bodywork applied as well, I think that's just a pure entertainment winner. And if not, then I apologize and I suck. Um, last question here. Thomas Pendergrass says, the core product of most traditional sports car manufacturers has actually become high-performance SUVs. Yes, is this a missed opportunity not uh, to have a racing class for this type of car? Because I know it sounds kind of stupid at first, but the more I think about it, Porsche Cayennes, Audi Q7s, BMW X5s, Lambo Uris, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with similar cars with a GT-ish level of aero could be really cool and a unique class looking uh, something like a between something between European truck racing and GT racing. I am right there with you, Thomas. This is another thing, and who knows? Maybe it's the DTM. Um, this does seem like a missed opportunity, and I don't know if it's because anyone's really calling for it, but we have to acknowledge that the automotive world has changed heavily, Graham, what they make, how many they make. Absolutely. We have seen the odd SUV competing in VLN and N24 racing. Lexus with their, uh, what is it? The GX 300. Is that that what the thing was called? That's had a couple of uh, uh, runs out and the much smaller kind of SUV crossover. The CHR has been, at uh, the Nürburgring 24 the last couple of years in the hands of, of customers. Uh, sad to see, by the way, that Toyota Gazoo Racing announcing they're pulling out from the Nürburgring 24 hours this year because of the 
the uh, lack of availability of testing for their truly factory-based team. These are guys who work on the cars, the road cars at Toyota back in Japan, so they won't be there this year. And they've been a firm part of it for every year that I've been involved, back to 2007. Um, You're right. You know, ultimately, it's about, you know, race on on Sunday, sell on Monday. Um, And in that regard, you've got to find a way of making those kind of motorsport relevance and it does seem odd doesn't it that it just seems every other month another high performance manufacturer is announcing an suv whether or not it's maserati or alpha or lamborghini as you say and then we've got bentley and we've got the awful rolls royce cullinan um you know audi with some uh, and you know for that matter porsche and bmw fords chevys Buick, well, ultimately, Dodgers. Here's, here's, the, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge to Gerhard Berger and Co. There's, there's two opportunities right there. The reality is that ain't happening for 2021, dudes. So there's no DTM in, in 2021 that's not going to look like the saddest thing in the world. But if they want to plan for something in 2022, there's two opportunities right there. Let's see what you can come up with. Uh, you're the guys with the um, with the, the contacts. You're the guys with the, the nous in motorsports. Find something that manufacturers want to spend their money doing and that gets crowds paying money on the gate. And there's two ideas right there. And you know what? They are far from the worst ideas I've heard this year. There you go. Now it's time time for fun. And where am I going to start here? Lobbing things at your big old melon, (laughs) uh, says the guy with the big old melon. Dan Rice says, I've seen Elio Castroneves wearing his Indy 500 ring during autograph sessions in the IMSA paddock at Long Beach the last two years. It's a nice, understated championship icon, and it's cool to see Elio rocking it, Graham. My question is, what is the most ostentatious championship icon you've seen a driver wearing, whether in the paddock or out in the world? Right. Two two, uh, two answers to this one. Um, First answer is... Uh, Alan McNish and uh, Alan well known for always wearing his Rolex 24 uh, winners Rolex. Oh, hang on a minute. No, he's not won it. Has he? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. Look at that. But he can always borrow Johnny Molens. Um, but uh, ah! so no, there's not that one. He just retired, so the by other the way. Is, Sorry. It's, it's Lawrence Ventura. Obviously. So Lawrence Ventura always races. If you if you get an in-car shot with Lawrence now, even though it was with a previous manufacturer contract he had with Audi, but uh, if you get an in-car shot, not the driver's kind of helmet cam shot, but the in-car shot, you will notice if you look carefully that he always wears his FIA World Cup, the Macau race, where he finished famously upside down in the Audi, always wears the World uh, Cup winner's tiara, on top of his driver's helmet. He does. Every race. It, it's... He's that kind of guy. Flashy. Flashy. Yes. Anyone that you can think? Uh, Blinged? I can't, because... They're all so understated, aren't they? You'd you never know these guys were racing drivers. They'd never tell you. If you were there in a, in a restaurant or a bar, particularly if you're, you may be, for instance, a young lady... There is no way that any of the people we know that it would come up at any point, even an extended conversation, that they're a racing driver. None of them. It never comes up in conversation. So I'm being slightly sarcastic, but slightly. Uh, just 
one thing that I can say continues to sadden me, which I believe has need to be rectified for a long time. As some of you know, I'm a fan of the WWE of air quote professional wrestling. They do one thing with magnanimousness and that is award big stonking championship belts. belts. They, and so I know that boxing does the same, but those belts and boxing tend to be, they look cheap. They tend to be somewhat short, uh, WWE championship belts, big, shiny. They look like if you don't work out, you wouldn't be able to lift them. They have serious heft, which to me equates to serious, real, there's provenance in this thing. So That's really what I believe. What, $20, 30 yeah. uh, Good, good 20 to $30, maybe 35 <laughs> I think it's fantastic that at Le Mans, you have the winner hoisting up the beautiful, large, rectangular trophy, there's always yep. one driver, it seems, that gets lost in the back who you don't get to see in the photo, but whatever. It's a beautiful thing. I know that here in the U.S., our most famous trophy, maybe the most famous trophy in all of racing, the Borg Warner Trophy for the Indianapolis 500, which is insured for $3 million, by the way. Wow. Uh, the winners, a bust of the winner is added each year to it. Those winners also receive a baby Borg, a small little obelisk looking thing um not too dissimilar from the look of the gherkin the lovely building uh in london as well uh those are great but those aren't things you can wear in your hand or you really wouldn't put a chain on a baby borg and wear it around your neck although that would be awesome so that's just why i think graham big wwe style championship belts hey great everyone hoist the thing up on the podium at lamal wonderful hey you knobs that finished third you get the little cute bite-sized miniature ones just to <laughs> remind you how much you didn't win sucker it's actually annoying how small they are just as just to drive home the fact that boy you failed uh but take this home so you can always look at your failure and how close you came to success it's like it's got a number two on it there. The, yeah. the number two is the biggest thing on there exactly belts this is where i think you belts. you rock because not only would you put them on when you win and on the you know you'd have that around your waist but the the baller just the baller move graham I, is when they I throw them up over their shoulder and hold them because it's a big weighty heavy thing that shines it says something it, it says far more than a ring could say or a medallion around one neck big championship belts that's the thing i've just remembered i just remembered quite a funny story that i'm not sure if it's true but that's not going to be stopped me then telling why you would right that now. eliminate it Absolutely. from happening am i right or am i wrong that back in the day the alms used to give championship rings i, th- I think they did i'm sure they did <laughs> right so i can recall being told this was the uh, this would be the early 2000s and for whatever reason and i can't remember why the um the banquet that gave out the awards was very late it may have been early the following year and this is a story that goes around it's an early audi championship win for manuel piro and a barracking from none other than the blessed uh, being that is james weaver and um the ring was handed out at the the uh, the, the championship winning banquet and 
Emanuele took the ring out and was looking at it in a curious way. And the heckle that came from James Weaver was, what is it, Manwelly? Smaller restrictor? Huh. <laughs> nice. So the only thing I can throw in that doesn't fit the question at all, but it came to mind, so I'll Excellent. say it. Yep. Is my good and old friend Michael Cannon. It, I, it was worn while they did winning and did win a championship, so it, it did become a, a private practice. Uh, the song, what is it, uh, from Ministry, Jesus Built My Hot Rod, I believe. Um, okay. He had the T-shirt, the, the T-shirt of uh, Ministry, Jesus Built My Hot Rod. And he would put that on before every race beneath his fire suit. And it became his good luck charm uh, with them having won a championship in Champ Car. So while that was not a public festoonage, it was certainly something that I'd love to see, knowing that what was he trying to bring into battle as a race engineer? Well, he wanted to let folks know who at least got to see him slightly undressed that Jesus built his hot rod. So I thought that was pretty fantastic. And I have other friends who've done similar things of wearing very specific message-oriented T-shirts beneath their fire suits. It could be a Beastie Boys T-shirt of them in the Beastie Boys van, yada, yada, yada. So maybe that's a whole sub-genre sub thing we need to cover. What kind of apparel do you wear beneath your factory official sponsor-laden fire suit um, that actually helps you to go and win races, maybe? I'm trying to think which famous Formula One driver it was that had a pair of lucky... Was it David Coulthard, a pair of lucky pants? And pants, by the way, in European parlance, undercrackers, basically, um, but had worn them since more or less karting days, and they were basically a vestigial piece of cloth by this stage. Oh. Is it, you know, uh, just awful. Uh, but they were the lucky lovely. pants. Absolutely. There's going to be one more, and it's going to be one to you from Cory Schumacher. Oh, Jesus, what and did I do now? Is, uh, <laughs> um, it's all around uh, the basis of our fake uh, our fake sponsor. If drivers can't make it to Watkins Glen and the Emsford NASCAR races are run together, wouldn't it be fun if they had to use NASCAR fill-in drivers? Who would your fill-in driver be and which car? Oh, well, I know that Corvette has at least two drivers who are European domiciled. I know that BMW does as well. So let's just stick with GTLM uh, because uh, that's maybe the thing that jumps out to me is a thing that I might be able to uh, process for drivers um, not attending the whatever return to racing for IMSA. So where would we go to pick four NASCAR drivers? Two apiece for good old European BMW, two for American. Well, I mean, it'd be... A little bit on point to say like a Jimmy Johnson's going to drive Corvette because he's a GM guy, Chevy guy. He's done this stuff before and Grand Am and yada, yada. And yeah, whatever. That doesn't interest me. Um, I'm going to go with Drew Blickensdurfer, who's the crew chief for Michael McDowell and Michael McDowell, his driver from Front Row Motorsports. Why? I have no idea. It just sticks. That, that seems like... <laughs> Just announcing that Drew, and again, he's a crew chief. He's not a driver, 
but just announcing a NASCAR crew chief, Drew Blickensderfer, as a great one name. of the... T- exactly. It sounds like a cartoon. Imagine the amount of articles. Who is Drew Blickensderfer? <laughs> How do you spell Blickensderfer? How the hell did they come up with Drew Blickensderfer? Um, and then, again, I, I know this is you know maybe one of those things that is not considered the most important aspect, but, uh, again, it, it's something that maybe we should consider just a little bit. And you say, well, so we're going to go do this. Um, we're going to have Michael McDowell and Drew Blickensterfer from Front Row Motorsports. Why would they fit within the Corvette racing team? Well, they happen to use a Ford Mustang in NASCAR. So I figure, you know, if we're just going to go completely to hell, then let's just pick the most heated and hated rival brand. Um, so, but the reason I like the McDowell pick is this is a guy who's a former road racer. This is a guy who came up and actually made it about halfway on what we would call the road to Indy. He was a, I think even a champion as well, uh, in the pro Mazda series. So, and I, you know, watched the kid race and he was really, really good and things flamed out and then he went to NASCAR and here we are. But anyways, so he's actually very good at road racing. So that would be a natural pick. He does drive for Chevy's most heated rival, but Hey, it's fantasy and I don't care. So yeah, we're putting a Ford Mustang guy in a Corvette. And we're adding in his crew chief. I don't know if his crew chief's ever done anything more than drive an SUV to and from the shop, but he's got the best last name. Drew Blickens, Durfer, Dorfer, whatever it is. There you go. Uh, what do we do for BMW, right? So there's no manufacturer conflicts, right? We've got two American manufacturers, one Japanese manufacturer playing in NASCAR. So where do we go? Well, I love me some Alex Bowman. He's my favorite NASCAR driver because he's just irreverent and silly and funny. And so Germans always need more humor. That's something I, <laughs> it's in the Bible. That's not like a, you know, uh, it, it's not a, it's not a really negative statement. It's just a known thing. So uh, Alex Bowman, for sure, he's going to bring some laughs. Um, but where are we going to go for that second driver? We need someone who's just Mr. Rage. So, again, Kyle Busch is kind of that guy. We might go there, but I'd also maybe I'd maybe say Kevin Harvick because he can also be just a really big dick. And <laughs> at least with how GTLM races get down, you can't have truly nice people in the cars. So I think that's where I'm going here. Harvick also, by the way, Ford driver, but, you know, who cares? Um, Bowman on the Chevy side. So, yeah. That might be the best collection of terrible answers I've ever provided for a fantasy (laughs) item here on the Weekend Sports Cars, Graham Goodwin. And you know what? One other final note. We are Pat. Well, we're almost at two hours. So why don't why don't we why don't we do something and wrap it up so we don't actually cross the two hour threshold? Yeah, that, that way, uh, the, my wife was staring at me from the kitchen and a, your dinner's been ready for more than half an hour, your dead meat sort of way. Uh, I might actually get away with uh, my life intact. Uh, this has been the Weekend Sportscast. That was two hours of gloriousness. By the way, if you enjoyed this, 
do have a look at the Marshall Pritt podcast and the season two of Who the Hell Are You? Some crackers on there. I've been enjoying one or two of them this afternoon. You can just call them uh, white people. Do you, you don't have to call them crackers. You can just call them white people. It's okay. Absolutely. You're racist. <laughs> But uh, that was another two hours of nonsense from us. We'll be back next week. Get your questions in when you see those calls come out on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, and on the Reddit uh, pages for USCR and WEC. Uh, and we'll get back to shaping this show. For now, with thanks to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, to Bell Helmets USA, and to Toronto Motorsports, I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been, well, is it Rocky, Rosie, and Marshall Pruitt? What? Uh, We'll be back with you next week. We will. And before we hit the stop button, I'll just share with you here, big exclusive, not at all, the close to season two of Who the Hell Are You, which is the close to the series as well. Nick Tandy, Paul Tracy, Mm -hmm. Richard Westbrook, Ryan Briscoe, Simon Pagano, and the absolute championship winner of all episodes the very final to say farewell, a man with two questions, Wolfgang Monser.